Hi there, folks, and welcome. Welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam, again. And this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. So you just show up, click a button that says Study Now, and the platform will then show you exactly what you need to learn next based on your progression. Now, this may sound simple, and in practice it is, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And what they're also unique in is that they teach all of the types of Japanese that you wouldn't normally get in traditional schools or textbooks. And if you've ever studied with one of the more common textbooks that foreigners usually pick up, you've probably noticed that there are a lot of sentences or conversations in there that you'd never really hear in real life, and vice versa. Some of the stuff you actually hear when you're out and about in Japan is never really covered in these traditional textbooks. So this isn't the case with Native Shark. It's very well grounded in everyday spoken Japanese, whether it's casual or formal language. And you can really expect, like one of the students writes in their reviews, you can really expect to be picking up the sort of little nuances that no one would expect a non-native speaker to use. And that's pretty rare for most Japanese courses. So yeah, really, really useful platform. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, we'll link to it in this episode show notes. That's native without an E, so N-A-T-I-V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash N-T-I. Use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So two weeks free instead of the one. And you can sign up for that free trial without having to put any uh, credit card or anything of the sort in there. So give it a go. You won't regret it. So for today's episode, and I know I say this a lot, we've got a super deep dive into a whole bunch of topics again. So once more, this is a recording of our Wednesday Clubhouse chat room on the topic of real estate in Japan with Tokyo expat family home expert Emil Gorgis, short-term stake queen Tracy Northcott, and Akia or abandoned slash vacant properties guru Matt Ketchum. And we take a whole lot of questions from the audience this time on a huge gamut of topics. So we answer questions about the incentives to investing in Japan, considering the declining population, the reasons behind the abandoned homes phenomena and how this affects the property market and tenant vacancy rates, a really detailed explanation of how to prepare for a potential future investment or family home loan application. And spoiler, you should really consider this a couple of years in advance. And we'll explain exactly why. And also about the different types of loans available, how they all work. We revisit the topic of investor versus business visas and how they can relate to property investments if and when they do. We talk about how negotiations are conducted in Japan and what types of properties can be negotiated. We talk about the differences between the residential and commercial market here. Uh, what to do with your property and or bank account if you happen to leave the country at any stage. That's for those among you who are actually living in Japan, of course. And um, we talk about whether it's better to invest in several cheaper properties or a single pricier property, where to buy, what kind of returns are achievable in all these different locations. And finally, we also touch on why exactly it is that people are so reluctant to move or relocate to a new home in Japan. So really diverse topics, and we tackle them all at great length, which is why this one's a pretty long episode, about two hours in total. So buckle in, enjoy the conversation, and I'll see you all again on the other side. 
Okay, so between the three of us and again Emil, um, who's a Tokyo agent who deals mainly in family homes um, for expats who are living in Japan, he's going to join us soon. He's just another call with a client. So between the three or four of us, we can hopefully answer any questions that you might have related to real estate in Japan. So feel free to raise your hand. We'll bring you up to the stage. The room is being recorded. Uh, I've also got the Japan Real Estate Podcast. You can find that on iTunes or Spotify or just Google Japan Real Estate Podcast. We're always the ones that uh, come up first. Um, but we're only going to be addressing you by your first names uh, or whatever name you've got on your clubhouse profile. And this is only audio, so no one's going to see your picture. Um, but if at any point you're not feeling comfortable with asking anything in public or you're not, being, uh, you're not feeling comfortable with anything being recorded, feel free to just click on our profile pic and um, you can either contact us directly via Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever we've got on our profiles or just follow us to get uh, new notifications when we uh, turn up in any other rooms or this one, which is every Wednesday again at 1.30. So yeah, anyone's got a uh, question or a topic that they'd like to discuss, feel free to raise your hand. That's the uh, little icon at the bottom there for the new Android users, anyone's just joined this week. So that little raise hand button will bring you up to the stage and you can ask um, anything that you might want to. Um, so yeah, we've got uh, Asa, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hey guys, thanks for me up, it's Asa here. So Asa, just, thank you. Appreciate it. Hi, so I'm a, I'm a small business owner here in Osaka. I just got started about a year ago. Um, I'm definitely interested in Japanese real estate. So I kind of have two questions. So I just wanted one was more of an opinion question. I've, I've heard a lot and I've read a lot with the population situation um, and I guess the real estate transfer of property being a bit confusing in Japan that from everything I've read, there is going to be a surplus of vacant and or you know, empty abandoned homes in Japan in the coming years. And the second question is everything I've read because of earthquakes and Basically, I've heard that you know, buying Japan real estate is a bad investment simply because it's almost you're guaranteed to lose money on your investment. So I just kind of wanted some of your guys' thoughts on those two things. Okay, well, on the um, I'll start and then I'll probably um, hand off at least on the abandoned uh, properties um, topic. I'll hand it off to Matt. But it, it's important to separate here the macro from the micro. So the macro uh, population trend of Japan demographically is not good. And unless people start having more babies um, or the gates of immigration open a bit wider, that's probably going to remain the case um, for a good few years to come. But what that means in practice is that all of the smaller uh, townships and s villages and little um, mini-cities um, which are on the outskirts of the bigger metropolitan centers are conglomerating into the cities themselves. So if you look at the population census, um, they've only released up to 2015 at this stage. They were supposed to release one last year, but because of COVID, it's only going to come out later this year. So you'll notice that the trend is that almost all major cities are actually growing in population. In one or two or three places, it's actually um, organic growth. There are people having babies. So places like Fukuoka, for example, uh, Fukui City are growing organically. But um, as far as the other metropolitan centers are concerned, they're just absorbing all of the smaller townships around them. So that trend is probably going to continue for at least a few decades. Um, and it's difficult to say what and if policies might change by then, um, but you're definitely looking at continued growth 
in almost all major cities, I think, except Sapporo, maybe, the population is definitely growing and is going to continue to do that for years to come. And when you're talking about abandoned uh, homes, and I'll, I'll hand the second part of that to Matt in a minute, but abandoned homes are usually referring to family homes. So as the families in Japan over the years become more granular, and this is happening anywhere in the world, but it's accentuated in Japan. So all of those bigger homes that used to house uh, multi-generational families, uh, maybe suburban, maybe older designs, older architectures, um, those are being um, abandoned or sold and demolished because people just don't need them anymore. So your typical Japanese professional couple or professional um, bread maker and one spouse who stays at home, they would at most have, on average, I think it's 1.4 children. I've never seen a 0.4 child, but in, in statistically, it's 1.4 children that these families have. So they've got absolutely no need for all of these old homes that they've inherited from their parents. And they actually prefer to be closer to a city center in a small apartment. Um, the mansion, the condo units are really the asset class of choice for anybody who's buying a, a family home these days. Um, so the abandoned homes that you're reading about are very different to the actual properties um, that are being sold and lived in and rented out all over Japan. So if you actually look at price trends, and that's, again, that's nowhere near a guarantee that that's going to continue. But if you look at price trends, uh, at least up until COVID hit, so again, similar to the population trend, you'll see that prices in most of the major cities around Japan are actually rising. Uh, so while there's abundant supply of abandoned homes, and this is where I'll hand off to Matt, the actual properties that are constantly being purchased to live in um, are actually far more in demand than supply. In fact, there's a, a bit of a shortage of supply, as Emil can probably um, testify to uh, once he speaks about what's happening in Tokyo. But regarding abandoned homes, um, which are more located in suburban areas or countryside, I'll let Matt speak to that. Yeah, sure. It was actually interesting. I was speaking with um, somebody earlier today regarding their uh, property, and uh, Ziv, you were talking about um, the kind of family element uh, that goes into a, a decent percent. I wouldn't say anywhere near all abandoned homes have something to do with families, but certainly a decent percent does. Um, and basically their, their issue was the, the real estate agents. Their father, I think it had been abandoned since 19, when was it, 1990 or something like that. Really excellent spot. Actually right near Itoshima Ziv um, oh. in, what was that place called? Can't remember at the moment. Karatsu, maybe? What was that? Nishiku Fukuoka City or Karatsu? That's east and west of Itoshima. A little bit more west of that. Karatsu, probably. Yeah, it was somewhere near there. Yeah. And a really nice spot. The, you know, it needs some work and everything. But the issue that they were having is, so the sister, there's two sisters. And no, they're not fighting over it, which is kind of rare. Um, the issue is that the, the real estate agents simply don't know what to do with it. Uh, and so it's been it's sitting there for, I guess, about 30 years now. Uh, not particularly well taken care of this one, so far as I can tell. Um, the documentation is there. I'm currently waiting on receiving that just to see, well, not just to see, but to see exactly kind of the, uh, the quality of the build and, and kind of everything about it. Um, but it's, so yeah, it's not always the case that there's some kind of fight. And if some, sometimes anyway, 
the, the family has everything totally together, and it's it's merely the, uh, the the agents just don't know how to sell a property like that, right? But I guess um, often I guess often it's just a case of really the descendants not really want the property, right? Like Emil was telling us, uh, and we'll let him introduce himself in a second, but Emil was telling us last week that they've got a similar case in their family now. They've got a property that um, uh, relatives are actually trying to offload and nobody wants it. Well, it's, it's yes, that's it, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that in that the family in question doesn't, doesn't want it. They want to reasonably get rid of it because they, they simply can't use it. They don't have any use for it. Um, they want to off it, but the method in which, or rather the methods that they are presented with, uh, at least kind of generally speaking, typically, are not the methods that are able to accomplish what they're trying to do, which is sell the property, which is, you know, not like a, I mean, it's a rural abandoned place. Like, typical real estate agents don't do that <laughs> normally, right? Um, so it's it's a matter of there's, you know, there's quite a bit of stock out there. It's merely that, well, maybe not merely, but part of the or part of the um, equation is that the standard model and the standard, I mean, standard real estate in general, right, is done in one manner, uh, which does not really jibe with what you're dealing when you're talking about Akia and stuff. Um, that's not to say, and I've said this before, that you know, all Akia are actually immaculate, you know, hidden gems. Like, most of them are complete garbage, right? Um, so being able to locate the good ones is sort of the first step, but then this is also an aspect that needs consideration, which is how to sell them, which is not, the answer to that question is not in the same way that you would sell a more typical property. Yeah, definitely, and probably not to the same types of buyers, too. Sorry, Tracy, you were going to say something? I was going to say, I mean, back to Ace's question as well, saying that, you know, that there's not a lot of capital gain within buying, um, you know, buying abandoned properties. Um, I think the the main thing is, is that uh, I think the building standards from the beginning um, were not that great. The, the, the buildings, um, you know, the buildings are not really built to, to, to last 150, 200 years like, you know, like in other countries, a lot of these standard family homes are um, they're, they're meant to come down and be re, like be rebuilt when um, you know when a family member gets married, or for example. Um, so they're not made from great um, you know uh, standards to begin with. So um, what's valuable is the land. It's not necessarily the, the building that's on top of it. Um, so. Um, and that took me a lot. When I first moved to Japan, I grew up in Australia, where you know bricks and mortar, everything you know appreciated, and that's how you made, that's how you built wealth with the equity. Um, it's just a different mindset. And uh, when I, you know, I pushed back on that a little bit because it was against everything that I knew. Um, but when I accepted that, it just sort of made a lot more sense. Um, if you if you if you expect a property to appreciate, it just won't. But that said, if you accept the way things are here, then there's opportunities uh, that you can find. Um, mm -hmm. like for example, within cash flow, like you know, making it a short-term rental or making it a longer-term rental, or you know, mm -hmm. there's, 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 it, it, you, when you start to think of it differently, then then that's when the opportunities rise. Yeah, and I think that was the um, that was what I was going to say to the second part of your question, Asa. That um, 
Japan is definitely not the place to go for property investment in the sense that uh, many of the people in Western countries think about it, which is property always grows in value. Um, I would actually argue that since 2008, at least, that's definitely not a given in other countries as well, but it's definitely not a given in, in Japan. So the sort of speculative purchases that you see in other countries where you purchase in areas that are um, bound for growth and where your property uh, price will definitely grow, um, this is not the reason that people purchase here. But having said that, there's a reason that it's the second biggest property market in the world, including for investment, and that is because... The, the things that attract people to invest in Japanese real estate are quite different to what it is in the West. So the main attractions are, um, A, how affordable properties are. And that's because uh, we're coming in on the back of two decades of deflation. So Tokyo and Osaka are pretty close to where they were uh, pre-deflation. But all over the rest of the country, um, prices are extremely low. And rents, while they have dropped uh, since 1990-something, uh, they haven't dropped nearly to the extent that the prices have. So that gap means that people can actually get very good cash flow here um, compared to what they'd get in other parts of the developed world. And they can definitely get very good cash flow um, in comparison with how hassle-free the nature of the investment is. So in other countries, for example, if you invest in cheap properties and high rental returns on paper, you're basically investing in ghettos, you get problem tenants, um, you have to force evict people, you have to constantly chase rents. That sort of thing doesn't really happen in Japan. So even a, a cheaper property um, where the tenant's going to be a low-income earner or somebody on a government welfare check um, just means that it's a cheaper, smaller, older property. That's about it. I mean, you don't get any of the headaches that you get with other properties. So it's a very hassle-free, hassle headache-free sort of um, professional management environment. Um, and the other thing is that the companies that you deal with, the uh, stability and, and reliability of the property professionals and the building management companies, the insurance companies, the um, um, even the tax authorities, um, they are a lot easier to deal with and manage here. Once you get past the language and cultural gap, um, there's just, I don't know how to put this um, you know, politely, but there's just not so many people reaching in your pocket and trying to get as much as they can out of the landlord as they would be in other countries. And I've experienced that um, when I've invested in the States and even in more, you know, legal recourse and more documented sort of countries like Australia and the UK, that's still an issue in many cases. Um, and that just doesn't happen here. It's not to say that all the professionals you deal with are super professionals. You sometimes have to prod them and push them and just make them do their job. But they're definitely all as honest as they come. And you don't need to worry about whether the property is being handled properly, whether your money is being handled properly. And those are really the factors that attract people to invest here. That and the high cash flow and the stable sort of rental return. But but before we carry on, I'll, I'll let Emil quickly introduce himself now that he's with us. Hey, guys. Um, yes, that's right. Late. I was on another call. Uh, my name is Emil. I'm a real estate agent here in Tokyo. So I'm just a, a traditional real estate agent. Um, we do home purchases for generally uh, for families, um, but people that want to live in uh, Tokyo long term that are looking to buy their property to buy their own personal family home. That's what I do. Um, we're a largely Japanese agency, so most of our clients are Japanese. But I work with foreigners, so I we provide all the information in, in English. Um, and I can support you in English. Um, and also the other big thing that, that we do, and look, most agents do it, but we do it as well, 
um, is uh, arrange the financing. So we act as a, a mortgage broker, essentially. In Japan, they don't really have these mortgage brokers. Um, interest rates are so low, the banks cannot afford to uh, pay off a commission um, or a trail, uh, um, interest trail uh, to, to the broker. But we provide that service because we need to close the deal. We get the sale commission from you, from the, from the customer. So we also provide the, uh, the mortgage brokering service and arrange the mortgage and financing for you. Uh, we have relationships with the mega banks, um, uh, MUF, uh, sorry, Mitsubishi UFJ, Mizuho, Arizona, and uh, SMBC, um, and also some other ones like you know, Shinsei and Presti, of course. So any questions you have about um, buying your own family home um, or financing, uh, how much you can borrow, based on your you know, relationship status, if your spouse is Japanese or if you have permanent residency or not, any of that sort of stuff, um, feel free to ask and I can happily answer that for you. Thanks. Tracy, were you going to say something? Or? Yeah, I was, I was just going to tack on to something to the conversation with Asa that we were having um, in that um, having a lot of these abandoned or empty or very low-cost properties um, outside of the metropolitan areas is actually a really good lifestyle opportunity for, for us city, city mice. Especially um, now, right? Dwellers. Um, and I've actually just seen one of my friends in the audience. She's done exactly this. They, they've, um, uh, you know, there are people who, who uh, it's affordable to get a second house. It's affordable to have another property in an area that's much quieter than the city where you can go out and get some green space or get some beach space. Um, and I've had a couple of friends just even in the last 12 months um, buy places cash because they are so cheap. And that's more of a lifestyle investment rather than a uh, investment in um, uh, for capital gain. And, uh, and I think as our society moves forward, I think you know that type of investment is is going to be priceless on on our on our productivity, on our mental health, and on, just on our lifestyle. So um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. People having a, a city house and a country house, um, and using them for themselves. Um, and uh, uh, there's there's big opportunities for that. Yeah, and we're seeing a number of our clients uh, opt into that kind of lifestyle, which is to say. Uh, you know, call it 80% or so of the purchases made with the intent of moving out and occupying and living in the property that they purchased. But then on top of that, uh, going sort of the Minshuku route and offering uh, teleworking comes up frequently, outdoor sports such as mountain climbing or hiking, wellness retreats, yoga, things like that um, also come up. And they're spinning up businesses. They're starting companies uh, that are based out of their newly purchased place in which they also live. Um, and kind of, well, yeah, making things happen that way. Yeah. Shitty guys, lots of really good information. Thanks again. No worries. And um, we had this conversation um, last week, and we're probably going to have it again, but um, for investment purposes, Japan is a cash flow environment, and the cash flow here is quite high. So we can uh, we can um, elaborate more on that later. But let's move on to Ashley. Ashley, welcome to the state. Are you the same Ashley I've just um, communicated with on LinkedIn this week? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't escape me, mate. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm stalking you. <laughs> Go for it, mate. Did you have a question? Um, yeah, hey, this is Ashley in Tokyo. It was really a follow-up from the previous points, but you guys have basically beaten me to all of the key points. You know, uh, with property in Japan, it, you shouldn't look at it from a capital appreciation as we would do in the UK or the US, but cash flow, cash flow can be 
significantly improved. Just for example, here in Tokyo where I live, I was renting for 300,000 for 70 square meters. I then bought 200 yards down the road for 70 square meters. And now mortgage plus tax plus maintenance is uh, 200,000. So cash flow saving of 100,000 a month, which is quite important. I think the other thing here in Japan um, is the mortgage rates, which uh, was touched on by Neil and, and Tracy. Um, but also the banks basically are awash with cash because the government keeps printing it and they don't know what to do with it. So um, as long as you have the patience to fill in the mortgage form and put your hanko in correctly uh, several times, then actually it's, a, it's really good. And then the other key point that I noticed that perhaps is pertinent here in Asia is, as best I understand, the real estate laws, property ownership laws, are race blind. In that, if you try to buy something in China or Korea or um, Singapore even these days, it's quite hard if you're not... For, foreigner them. blind, I'd say. depends on your residency more than your race. Blind. Yeah, even in Australia and New Zealand, for that matter. Yeah, um, so that's another really nice thing about the market here. Uh, yeah, but if you're thinking of buying and then flipping it in six months' time with, I don't know, double profits, then wrong place. However, <laughs> there are other benefits to it. Yeah. That was all my points. I think you guys have covered everything else. No, no, spot on, spot on. And I, I also, that, that's a very important point that we forgot to mention. Japan's actually the only country um, in all of Asia Pacific, I think, that doesn't have any limitations on foreign buyers. You're actually uh, exempt from some of the uh, local taxes if you're not a resident. So it's, uh, it's very unique in that respect as well. So yeah, I think they could just put a, a law out that you need approval if you're going to buy something that's close to whatever they deem to be a security threat. Um, that's the only thing that's just come out recently, but otherwise, yeah. I was not aware of that. Is that only for foreigners or for Japanese as well? Uh, best I understand for foreigners, and I think I assume it's something to do with the uh, Senkaku Islands um, oh. and buying next to nuclear um, reactors or um, air force bases. Seems to be. Uh, yeah, that's just been pushing through. That's really uh, interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to that um, at one caveat. Yes, the banks are awash with money, um, but when you're self-employed, uh, like I am, uh, it is a lot harder. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't qualify for all these, like, super cheap mortgages, unfortunately, so I have to go the investment rate. It's still cheaper than the interest rates from banks overseas, but um, uh, it's, yeah, so... Uh, banks love it if you work for a nice big stable company with a brand name but when you're self-employed it, it does you have a few more hoops to jump through so um, yeah my, my experience was I was working at the British Embassy at the time I employed for the mortgage and they fell over backwards for me it's like just the most wonderful thing ever so yeah I can well imagine if you went as um, uh, a self-employed person they might have a different view well, that, that's the, uh, also the downside of, uh, you know, how we, um, all of us who are self-employed are probably uh, maximizing our tax benefits and making our incomes uh, look as low as possible. So there could be a bit of that in there, too. I would never do that. No, of course not. No, no. I mean, the, the, so, those are other people. So I'm just going to jump on there. Um, yeah, look, it's, you know, as a, when I talk to people, um, often we have like a one-hour phone call just to talk about their financial situation and the sort of property that they want to buy. Um, and yeah, definitely for it's, there's always, or almost always, for anyone who's not squeaky clean, so if they just changed jobs or they've been, like, you know, transitioned and they're 
unemployed for more than two or three months, um, or you know they if they are self-employed or they're the company owner, they own their own KK and pay themselves a salary to the Daikyotoishi Mariyaku, uh, they need, it's, it ends up being like a two, almost a two-year strategy. It's like, okay, this is the information you need to know. This is what the numbers need to look like and what, you know, how much income you need and how your business needs to be functioning, etc., in order to qualify for the loan that you, the kind of money that you need. Um, yeah, and it's a two-year Strategy. Just just before this, actually, I was on a, on the call to someone, and uh, he didn't have permanent residency, and he's he's single. And the fact that he needs a twenty percent deposit for the most part, because he's just changed job, he needs a twenty percent deposit means he needs about ten to fifteen million yen of cash. And I said, well, you either need to save that much, or you need to apply for permanent residency, um, and that will happen in if you apply now, you can get it in a year. So he's going to do that instead. And so it's it's a one year plan before he can even start looking. But yeah, you you need to start having the conversation and understanding realistically about where you stand now and where you need to be in order to qualify for the loan that you want. Um, and that's why I tell people, yeah, and that's why I think a, a, chat, a room like this is so helpful. People that come onto this, um, and if you're you know one of those people in, in the audience, you've just come on. A lot of times, you don't need to be ready to buy right now. To talk with, to talk and ask questions, um, but it's this engagement and asking questions that puts you in the right position, so you can strategize and in two years' time, so you can plan. So in one to two years' time, be ready to go ahead and purchase. If you wait and say, "Oh, I'm not going to have my PR," or "I'm not going to," you know, well, whatever, um, I won't be ready until two years' time, and then in two years' time, you found out, "Oh no, you you didn't plan correctly," so it's another two years from there. That's a, a disservice to yourself and your family. So get onto it um, sooner rather than later. Um, and so even if you feel you're not ready now, at least get the right information so you can prepare uh, um, uh, effectively. That's yeah, a- let me let me just back that uh, back that statement up. As in support that statement and and second that statement. It's uh, yeah, it's, it seems very basic, but at the same time, the number of times that. You know, people kind of just run into things and think, and you know, a large purchase, right? It's like, geez, you don't you don't know anything about this, and then it never happens. So yeah, do your research, prepare yourself for things, get yourself ready for, you know, the journey of of all of this. And if you do that, then yeah, in a year's time, maybe it's six months' time, whatever. But then it can happen. But if you wait, you know, it's just it, it'll never come to fruition. It's probably not a bad idea to also, um, especially for the self-employed among us, to also um, work with a good accountant in this um, sort of financial planning when you're looking ahead because they will often know um, a lot more about what the banks are looking for and they also know how to make um, your profit and loss statements be more appealing to the bank when they're reviewing those sort of documents in preparation. Um, before we move on to Insurrect, there's just a quick reset of the room. So this is the uh, Japan Real Estate Room. Welcome everyone who's just joined us recently. We're here once a week, 1.30 every Wednesday, Japan Standard Time. And we talk all things related to Japan Real Estate, answer people's questions. And we sometimes have a bit of a banter between us as well. And I'm a I'm Ziv. I'm a buyer's uh, advocate and portfolio manager for foreigners who are residing in or out of Japan, mainly for property investments, also for holiday homes, anywhere in the country. 
Matt to my right is the Akia and Abandoned Homes guru. So he uh, knows everything there is to know about purchasing abandoned homes or uh, properties that seem like they're abandoned in the Japanese countryside uh, where there are plenty of bargains to be had, but also, as he likes to put it, plenty of garbage to be had. And Tracy, and to my far right, is the Minpaku Queen, and she is the master of everything related to short-term stays, whether you're purchasing properties or have properties that you want to use for the purpose of um, having guests in there on a short-term basis so you can maximize your income uh, via Airbnb or any of the other platforms that are out there for that, or whether you've got a home in Japan that you're not using all the time and you'd like to utilize it to make some extra money off it when you're not using it, and she's your, uh, she's your queen there. And Emil, at the uh, middle of the bottom row there, is a Tokyo real estate agent and broker who helps uh, mainly expats and their families purchase family homes and apply for mortgages and uh, find the right place for them in and around Tokyo. So, moving on to uh, Insurrect. Welcome, mate. Do you have any questions? Thank you for having me on stage. Uh, this is the exact kind of information that I would like to have. Uh, I'm interested in maybe buying an abandoned home or, you know, cheaper uh, real estate, uh, but I don't have a PR. I, I'm a Thai citizen and also, um, so I don't have a permanent residency in Japan and also getting, uh, you know, for Thai citizens, we can only stay in Japan like 15 days at a time. I would like to ask if it is possible to buy property in Japan, like, you know, like this cheap abandoned home, and would that also in the future uh, somehow can lead me to permanent residency in Japan, and what are the steps involved, and, 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 and uh, is that worth it at all to pursue this uh, route? Uh, I'm sure you have been asked many uh, many times this question. But I'll just say before Matt answers that I miss your country so much. I haven't been to Thailand in two years, and it's the first time in 20 years, and I'm homesick even though I don't live there. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I, I, we go to Thailand once a year, and it's just we can't go. It's so sad. Yes, and uh, missing traveling also, and also missing Japan. I used to live there for uh, a few years, so yeah, it's kind of like my second home too. Um, yeah, to answer your question briefly, totally possible. Um, Finance-wise, that's going to be uh, kind of hairy a little bit. Um, I'd say that you probably want to aim for a cash purchase um, if you are coming in and out of the country. Not having PR isn't necessarily a deal breaker, um, but it, it definitely helps to have that. But even if you don't, there are ways to go about it. But they want Japanese income, right? They want to see you have income generated in Japan. Yeah, yeah. There's always been, you know, marriage certificates and things like that. So you can kind of stack the deck in your favor even if you don't have that. Um, Let's see. I'm fading right now because it's 1 a.m. over here. (laughs) What was the uh, second part of that question? Well, when you take Uh, cash purchases... PR and it's worth it. Yeah, in a sense... Um, I would say that the easiest and easiest of the options, but not necessarily easy, uh, would be to start a, what amounts to a holding company in your name that manages the, uh, the property that you've purchased. It sounds kind of strange, but this is one way towards self-sponsorship. And by doing that, you can, you can, uh, continually renew your visa up until the point that gain of PR. That being said, if you get, you know, a job offer over here too, and uh, what is it, 10 years at this point? 
that you need. It's dropped to five now, I think, it's with, certain with certain conditions, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, really there's any number of ways to go about getting PR as well. So long as you get it, uh, that'll only, you know, stack the, the deck further in your favor. There's uh, easier so. ways to get a PR. We went through this process with quite a few clients who are interested, and it's a lot easier to get a PR by um, just setting up a small shop and you know starting right, a company right, to right. do that rather than invest in real estate and generate the sort of income that will justify a PR. I'm, I'm going to just jump in um, and say so um, uh, to um, uh, Paisan, it says your name is. Um, yeah, I'm going to say it's probably a bit different Unless you have lots of cash to, mm. you know, significant cash to purchase a property, you, uh, I think to have a business investor visa, because essentially you're going to come with a business investor visa in order to uh, set up your company and sponsor yourself, right? Uh, the company needs to have at least, I think, 5 million yen worth of capital, paid in capital, um, and there are some other conditions. So it, it could... So setting up the company, it'll it'll end up costing you between seventy or what seven and eight million at least. The five million paid in capital on top of company establishment fees and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah. So, well, what I suggest is rather than thinking, I know sort of in Australia, for example, I don't know if they still do it, but they did before. If you just put in, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in purchase of property for that, uh, you could technically have, you know, it's like you invested in the country. Um, so that was sufficient, whereas in Japan, it's a little bit different. Uh, the, what you should be searching for is how to get residency as a, using a business investor visa and all the requirements on how to establish a company. The fact that the company um, manages your, a real estate property um, or, as Ziv mentioned, maybe has a shop is kind of irrelevant. Um, I, and depending on your financial situation, uh, it could just be a bit... It's, it's quite prohibitive. You need to have quite a bit of cash behind you to uh, be able to come here and establish a company that's not really doing a lot of real active business. You don't have an existing business that it's going to operate. It's really going to be something from scratch. Um, and to have a business substantial enough that you can renew a visa for a decade until you get permanent residency, uh, that could be a bit complex. So uh, that, that's what you should... Uh, Research is getting permanent, like uh, how to get a business investor visa and what the requirements are for establishing a company. I feel that could be the biggest hurdle. If you can clear that, great. Um, but don't think just purchasing a, an Akia um, is going to be the, the easy approach. It's not that easy. It'll be a lot easier, for example, to set up. Um, I'm just thinking you're saying Thailand, so to set up. Um, uh, Thai food or a Thai massage or something related to Thai uh, Thai um, products anywhere in Japan. I think you need to invest just five million yen, so fifty thousand US roughly, um, and that will actually be a business that generates more income than a passive um, passive income stream from a property will be. Um, that'll probably be a much easier way to get a visa in the long term. I think. So uh, what I gather is, uh, please. Please correct me if I understand correctly. In order to gain a PR, you need to prove certain level of 
income being generated in Japan. Is that correct? That's to renew it every year. So to set it up, you need a business plan and you probably need to hire uh, one or two local staff, depending on how much you're planning to invest. And I'm happy to put you in touch with an immigration lawyer that our customers uh, often work with who can provide more accurate details. But the real challenge after you've submitted the business plan and it's been approved, um, that's going to get you a visa for one year. The challenge is to prove that you're actually generating taxable income every year that would suffice uh, for you to keep extending that visa. And that needs to be a taxable income. So pre-tax net income of 2.5 million roughly per dependent. So if it's just you, it's 2.5. If you got a wife and two kids, it then becomes a, a 10.25 million and so forth. So definitely uh, just owning a property in Japan doesn't entitle you to PR. Well, it will if it's a property that you've purchased for, say, a million bucks, a million U.S. dollars, and it's generating that sort of you know, income every year. But um, like we were saying, there are much easier, cheaper ways to generate that income. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just answer that and say probably no. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my, my general take is if you're, uh, it, yeah, it's just, it's just not a approach that you would take. Um, but what I do recommend is jump on, there's a site called Tospec, T-O-S-B-E-C, the Tokyo One-Stop Business Establishment Center. Um, and they give lots of advice for, basically it's in, it's in English, on how to establish a company and come in as a business investor with a business investor visa. And so you can ask them, look, what they, so uh, it's Tospec, T-O-S-B-E-C. Uh, so just, just Google them um, and reach out and do an online consultation with them. And they can explain getting a visa through business establishment and as a business investor. And that, I think, is the, the approach. What your business done, does, whether it's property management, etc., is it doesn't really matter. Um, but, yeah, I think... Uh, but what your question, which I, I, I think you're asking is, just by owning an asset, owning a property in Japan, does that entitle you to uh, some kind of visa or residency status? And the answer is no, that doesn't. The best way to do it via property purchase, I would say, if you are interested in that sort of thing, is to um, buy one of those uh, countryside homes and turn it into a guest house. It's actually a business that's generating income every year. And then if that income is sufficient, then that might be a sort of hybrid way of using the property to get a business visa. But it's still, it's just a normal business visa, regardless of which business you're actually running. Just one last question. Um, do you have to be present in Japan uh, at a minimum like length each year in order to gain PR? during all these visa processes? Ten years. Um, <laughs> I mean, how many, uh, how many Half, days in a year? Generally speaking, for the business visa um, to be renewed every year, they would want to see that you're here for at least half the year out of every year that you're asking to renew it. And they, so in the year leading to that renewal. Um, and from, again, from the immigration lawyer's um, experience, the one that we've been normally talking to, they, at least in the first year, it's highly recommended that you stay here for most of the year and show them that you're actually working on the business. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and say, if you're only coming in for 15 days at a time, you're coming in as a short-term, um, uh, on a short-term visa. Again, I'm not 
the please, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but um, but if, if you're coming in and out via um, on short-term uh, short visas, then you're not actually supposed to be working, so that's actually not counted as residency. Um, now, I think he means after he's gotten the visa, if he actually still needs to stay in the country for oh, it to be renewed. I see, I see, sorry, uh, my mistake. Yes, thank you. All of this information is very helpful. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you all in Thailand very soon. Yes, oh. but but again, look, we're, we're not we're not immigration lawyers, um, but uh, so you know, please consult consult a professional. There's there's some good ones around. Ziv can introduce you. I can introduce you. Yeah, the one that we work with will only charge you, I think, um, five thousand yen, so fifty dollars for one hour consultation, and he's got all the answers. So it's a really good investment if that's the uh, the route you're planning to pursue. Thank you, thank you very much. No worries. And if anybody else has got any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. We'll bring you up to the stage. We're happy to talk about um, all and anything related to Japan real estate, and as you can see, a bit of other topics as well. Um, so don't be shy. Raise your hand. Come up to the stage. And uh, hey, I'm gonna jump off. Uh, Go to sleep, talk. Matt. <laughs> yeah, right. that's what I want to do. Where are you, Matt? Where are you? I'm in I'm in Michigan right now. <laughs> are you on a visa? Are you on a vaccine run? Are you? I sure am. Got here five five days ago, and I've got twenty more to go. <laughs> so many people are on vaccine runs right now. Yeah, I'm a bit jealous, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, if you uh, if you want details, I'd be happy to fill you in. I don't think any of us uh, qualify for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, but I can give you you know the general rundown. I guess. Oh. I'm tired. I, I'm not speaking. Guam. <laughs> Guam. Guam are talking about. Um, opening up for visa tourism so because they're doing the Johnson Johnson one shot so they're definitely yeah. vaccinated their whole population vaccine tourism oh that that's brilliant yeah so Guam, oh, yeah. Saipan it's like two hour like you could do a two hour like go for a weekend get your shot go to the beach come home so and then two right. weeks quarantine on your way back in right you will have to quarantine on your way back in yes yeah. can I just say how pathetic is Japan at rolling this out when it's more practical to travel overseas to get it done. But that's, that's my life. It's, 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 it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And so most, if, if you're well connected, if you're high up, then you will have already gone to the US and get you've got your shot. So, um, yeah, it's it's such a divide between, you know, the connected and the, and the you know, the great unwashed type we are. And the, and, and the, and the plebes, right? Yeah, the plebes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So all right, well, <laughs> get out of here, man. Well, hey, all y'all have a good uh, good talk, and see you next week. Have a good night, man. Bye, Matt. So I, I just want to encourage anyone who's got questions to, to come up. Um, otherwise, we'll just vamp up here because I was going to ask Ziv a couple of questions about his podcast. So you're streaming this live. Um, onto your podcast, and that gets—is that YouTube or what? Which uh, which platforms that on? And um, what sort of the, what are the main questions that people people connect to you uh, about um, about your business through the podcast? Oh, okay. Well, first, we're not streaming it live. I'm recording it um, very old school, like um, on my PC with a microphone. I've got a really good microphone that one of our customers who loves the podcast bought for me because he was tired of hearing me garbled. So I've got a pretty good microphone, which helps. And uh, I'm recording this on my PC. And then I just save these. And the ones that are really interesting and have uh, got a lot of topics that people are often asking about, then I publish as podcast episodes. 
Um, the podcast we have is hosted on a platform called uh, Podigy, which is a pretty cheap one, and it also helps us to then they automatically push the podcast out to uh, the iTunes store and Spotify and Stitcher and all the places where uh, podcasts are usually searched for and found. So it's just really convenient for us. Um, and then we also um, feature them on our website and we um, put links to them on social media channels and so forth. Uh, the, as for the questions that people ask, um, it really depends on uh, who's asking and where they heard about us. So people who heard about us in an investment context have got a lot of investment-related questions. And people who are just looking for holiday homes obviously have different types of questions. Um, so it depends. It also depends on whether they're familiar with Japan or not, because we often, hey Jamie, because we often get um, we often get approached by people who have actually um, lived in Japan or have traveled to Japan extensively, and then they don't have any questions about Japan. They just want to also get their foot into real estate here. On the other hand, we often get contacted by investors who are just looking for a really good deal and they know absolutely nothing about Japan. So for them, it's um, yet another Asian country and they want to see how they can benefit from investing here. So it's really wide gamut of question depending on who the person is. Interesting. Yeah, thanks mm. for that. I just... Uh it just seems like there's just so many great podcasts out there. I just don't have enough hours in the day to listen to them all. So um, I'll put you on my list, Steve. Tell me about it. That's okay. I, I, I've, I've tried listening to everything I'm interested in and figured out that I'm, you know, I'm years behind on catching up on episodes when I do that. So I've only got like three or four that I actually listen to these days because it's only really like while exercising or cooking um, or during commute, right? Like that's the only time that I can actually focus on listening to a podcast. I, I can't focus and write at the same time. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, Jamie, moving on to you, mate. Any questions? You'll have to unmute there, Jamie. The little microphone icon, mate. little microphone icon so that we can hear you. There you Sorry are. for the background noise. Um, I'm on the street at the moment. Um, I was curious to know how price negotiations went for all of you who have uh, purchased uh, properties uh, in the countryside and so on, and how uh, Japanese uh, sellers are. How how what works? Sorry, I missed the first. Uh, missed the first. Missed missed the first part of your uh, question there. Sorry, Jamie. How does what work? Uh, how do price negotiations tend to go when you've uh, you know decided on a property you're interested in and and you make an offer? Um, you know, uh, you know, it's customary in, in other countries you know, to offer what you think of the, the property's value is and or its income potential and so on. And just curious. Yeah, well, um, I think um, Emil might have something to say about family homes in that regard. But on the other hand, he mainly deals with new homes. So I'm not sure um, uh, what he's got on secondhand homes. As far as investment properties are concerned, um, those are normally priced um, based on the rental yield that they generate. So the investor obviously knows what sort of yield the property generates, and he, together with his selling agent, will price it based on that. And then we, depending on how popular the area is and how attractive the property is, we might be able to take it down by 10 or 15%. And that's generally acceptable, but if it's a, in a really highly desired location or it's a highly desired property profile, then the seller will often just say no because they know that they're going to get um, attractive offers coming in. If you're talking about um, homes in the countryside or vacant homes or abandoned homes, 
then it's probably a lot more doable, um, mainly because people are often looking to get rid of it just so they can stop paying the property tax. So in those cases, you could potentially um, bring them down more. But really, really low-ball offers like you sometimes get in Western countries are considered a little bit rude here. So if you would come in offering 50% of the uh, asking price, um, often that seller will just not want to speak to you again because they consider it to be a ridiculous offer. Okay, that, yeah, that's very helpful. So it's, it's pretty much just uh, a reasonable negotiation, just like anywhere else. Well, I'll... And demand I'll and, okay, sorry, just, go ahead. Just, Jamie, so let me... So my experience is I work for mostly in family homes in Tokyo, um, and that's... So they're, they're not abandoned. Um, or anything like that. They may need a renovation. Um, so whether it's new or used, budgets lists took something say anywhere between forty million to one hundred and fifty million yen, right? So between say four hundred thousand US to one and a half million dollars US. Um, if you want to talk about properties like this, yeah, let's say midway, say seventy million yen, you can maybe negotiate if it's a brand new property, okay, like a, a brand new household. Um, uh, Maybe say two off the bat, about two million yen. It depends if it's still under construction or if it's actually complete. Generally, when it's in the construction stage, the seller is not in a hurry to really sign the contract, right? Because even if they sign the contract of sale, the person's not going to move in until you know three to six months later is not the settlement, right? So they'll just rather keep it on the market and try to get the full price for it after it's built. And it's it's not sold for about three months. It may take um, then they may drop it two or three million yen. So again, this is working on say a, a say a seventy to eighty million yen property. You might have about two or three million yen of negotiation in there. And after it still doesn't sell for like you know almost six months, you might have four to five million yen worth of um, uh, further discount. But it takes it does take time. Um, they're not going to discount it right away. Probably right off the bat, maybe one to two million yen is the most you can sort of realistically negotiate. That's How about second-hand second-hand homes, Emil? Do you have much experience yeah, with those? So, yeah, yeah. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just about to go into that. So that's with a brand new property. Now with second-hand properties, so with a brand new house um, or imagine with a developer, um, they they kind of price it accurately. And depending on how quick they want to sell it, they can think it will price it a little bit higher. And someone that really, that someone where this house really checks all of their boxes is going to be willing to pay the premium for it. Okay, um, and that's kind of their, their their strategy. Sometimes they price it; they know just right at market, like it's a good value, and they get all sold before they're even built. Okay, it depends on on the developer. The generally the larger developers can price a bit higher because they have more funds and can hold out um, waiting to get the, the you know, they, they have more financing available and they're not in uh, as much of a rush. Now with used homes, the situation is completely different. Um, the And it depends on the urgency of the seller. Generally the owner is still living there and if they bought, if their next property that they want to move to, if they've already bought it and built it, generally what happens is maybe they've outgrown it. The kids are, they've had more kids and they just, you know, the kids are a bit bigger and they've, they've outgrown the property. They need to move. If they've already bought the next place, right, they'll say, okay, like just say they're building the new house and it's going to be built in, you know, be ready in four months' time. They 
won't accept a really low ball offer, right? Because they still have four months before they need to move out. But what happens is as it gets closer to the date, um, they might be a bit more flexible on price, two or three million yen. And then if they've actually already moved out and it's vacant and it's already been three or four months of vacancy, we could even get maybe 10% um, negotiation room. If they, and that's only though if they've generally started at a bit of high price. Remember, we're talking sort of in Tokyo, like the 23 wards. So maybe um, the pricing, they started a bit high, they, they love the property and it was just not realistic. Um, generally, properties are on the market for about three months. Um, if you get sold within three months, then that's average and means it was priced pretty okay, pretty um, reasonably. Um, six months means it was priced a bit high and is taking a bit of time. There's something wrong with the property. It's not so attractive. It's not priced accordingly. Uh, so you, you could have a bit more um, negotiation room. Depends on the urgency of the seller. Uh, some situations, probably the least attractive situation and least negotiation room as a buyer is when the owner is just, the next place they're going to go to is they're going to rent. So whenever they sell their current property, they're just going to move their family and start renting the next place. And sometimes it will actually say, look, we, from when the contract is signed, they want, the seller wants two months of lead time so they can find their next rental property. And because they're just renting, they're in no rush. They're just whenever it's ready. And so that has the least room for negotiation, maybe say one to two million yen um, at that. And it, you know, a low ball offer is just not going to be accepted. But yeah, anywhere from say two to like, well, one to five million yen is what I would say is realistic. If someone, if one of our clients comes in and says, hey, we want to 10, like we want to do, instead of 70 million, we want to offer 60, um, I won't even present that to the to the, uh, the buyers, the, the agent. I'll tell the client, look, no, um, I like it, it's, it ruins our reputation. If we start going with those kind of offers to, to sellers, they'll say, you know, Emil, why are you wasting our time? Right, Your, this client is not serious. You know, this property is worth a lot more. Um, and in the future, when we try to negotiate, they're not going to take us seriously as an agent. So we need to maintain our relationship with the with the um, the seller's agent as well. So we can't go with just unreasonably low ball offers. That was fascinating, Emil. I stand educated as a, I can say that we're definitely a lot more aggressive in the investment uh, sector. <laughs> Yeah, I think look, when people are trying to sell investment properties, um, their strategy, it's, it's more financial. Um, it's, there's different reasons for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, when it's your own personal home, um, there's, yeah, I think the, the factors are different. Does that, work? Does that work the other way as well? Because, you know, haggling is not part of the culture necessarily in Japan. Um, when you're selling, does it... Um, you know, does does that work in your favour if you you know if you do try to bump the price up a little bit high, being a bit cheeky, or does it just mean that you're going to languish on the shelf? So it's pretty common for people to aim a bit high and give themselves a buffer to like you know put it two or three million yen higher because people even just in the Japanese market they if it's priced at sixty eight million, even though like they. The seller will actually say, look, we're comfortable with, or the agent will discuss, oh, look, this is how much you can expect, about 65. We'll price it at 67, right? And we'll see what interest we get. And, um, you know, but at least we know we can 
get the 65. And I even have agents when I go do viewings, the agents will tell me, look, you know, it's been, I've been on market for one or two months. So look, they'll actually accept about 65 or 64, right? So if you can get your client up to that, then we can get our client down a bit. Um, they'll, they'll let me know um, sometimes, but it's generally within that kind of range, right? Just, just like, you know, so on, if it's a, a 40 million yen property, there's not going to have 3 million yen worth of negotiation room um, so much. But if it's a, like, usually the houses I deal with, like, are over 60, 70 million, yeah, you know, 2 two to 3 million yen is kind of actually a pretty decent negotiation. We did one where we got about 5, I think it was 6 million yen off. That was in March of last year, which was right at the start of, the uh, state of emergency, so no one had any idea what was going on, and that was a uh, 120 million yen property. We got it for uh, like 114, sorry, so six million yen off. Um, and yeah, so just to give you kind of the idea of realistic kind of uh, negotiation prices. One of the things, Tracy, too, um, with investment properties as opposed to family homes is that no one's going to get emotionally attached to an investment property, right? Like nobody feel looks at a um, you know, like a one-bedroom, one-hour studio unit in some building that was built in 1995 and think, oh, my God, that's my dream home. So the the people who sell them um, really have to put them on the market at prices that are going to attract other investors. Otherwise, no one's going to even um, give them the time of day. So they're priced, I think, um, quite accurately on the investment front. And if not, they'll be discounted fairly quickly. It's interesting that I'm hearing you guys talk about the Japan real estate market and and the behavior is very similar to the U.S. I sell properties in the U.S. and everything you guys say, it repeats itself in the U.S. Like if you have a property for $500,000, you're not going to get it for $400,000. You're going to probably drop it down to $20,000, $40,000 at the most. And, and everything else behaves exactly the same. It's humans are humans, right? <laughs> One thing is different, I'm going to say, Andrew. We, yes, yes, never, we never sell or offer above the asking price. Yeah. Correct, same here. Yeah, same here. No, uh, in, in Australia, there's, they, they give a, there's rarely a, a fixed price. It's almost always auctions, or they give a price guide and they, they will get multiple offers and that will sort of go Oh, the auction up, style, up. yeah, that doesn't happen. Um, and similar with rental. Whereas if, I'm the, if I want to purchase, just say the property is 60 million yen and my client gets the financing approved and is the first with the offer for 60 million yen, some, like the agent will accept it, that the seller will, okay, we've accepted you. Um, they, won't, they will not contact the other potential buyers and say, we got an offer for 60, can you give 62 million? Yeah, that never happens here. That, that does not happen. But Emil, before we, um, sorry Alejandro, before we um, jump off to you, we had uh, Saad on the stage. I think he also wanted to ask a question. Perfect, yeah, thank you very much, uh, uh, Ziv, Emil, and uh, Tracy. I think my, my question, uh, being someone sitting in the US and just uh, uh, very interested in Japan in general, having spent multiple times and all I think I wanted to just understand as and as an investment uh, asset like how what is the long-term view of uh, investing in real estate in Japan 
And the reason I ask is I think of it from a macroeconomic perspective where you have, you know, you have uh, deflation, where you have, you know, uh, situations with the population growth. So I'm curious, how do you think of uh, price appreciation or uh, rental returns when it comes to investing in real estate in Japan, given that the economic conditions may not be uh, are let's just say are very unique in Japan than in the rest of the world. And um, and yeah, so I'd love to just hear what you think about that and what are the different pros in terms of uh, looking at that type of assets if I'm looking to hold an investment property for, you know, five year, five to 10 year uh, time horizon. Thank you. Yep. So um, on the investment front, um, that's spot on what you said. So Japan is a totally different environment um, economically and investment wise. And people invest here uh, purely for cash flow. Okay, so it's not generally a a growth environment. Properties in um, larger metropolitan centers do tend to hold their value at least. And in some cases, if the um, economy overall does well, then those central locations will also rise in price. I mean, uh, Tokyo and Osaka specifically, we mentioned before, are now close to where they were um, pre-1990s when the last bubble burst here. They've actually recovered almost to that point, at least before COVID hit. Um, But other parts of the country are very, very affordable. And that's another one of the reasons that people actually purchase them. So... While the um, population is um, is declining overall, what it means for larger metropolitan centers is it's actually conglomerating or um, centralizing. So you've got all of these little towns in and around the bigger cities that are actually um, moving or, or being absorbed into the bigger metropolitan centers. So if you look at most of the cities, uh, the bigger cities and the medium cities in Japan, they're actually gaining in population not organically, but because they're absorbing these smaller townships. And that's probably going to be the case um, at least for the next couple of decades. And by that time, things might change demographically as well, depending on policy, immigration, uh, birth rates, and so forth. But if you're looking at a five or ten year period, um, the cash flow that you're going to get from these properties is probably going to be on par uh, in some cases better than the uh, speculative growth that you might get in other countries. So that sort of evens out, and that's what draws people here. And the second and third things that draw them here is um, how affordable these properties are, at least out of Tokyo and Osaka. So for the same price that you would have bought a um, single-family home in the USA, and definitely in places like Australia or Singapore or New Zealand, where a lot of our customers come from, you would have bought five or six or seven properties here in Japan. So that gives you more diversity um, as far as your income stream goes, socioeconomic, geographical locations, and so forth. So one tenant moves out um, in your single property in the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand, um, that's your income stream down to zero. And here, for the same capital that you've deployed, one tenant moves out equals maybe 25% of your income stream. You're still generating income. So that's added hedging. Um, and the third reason is, um, again, like we mentioned earlier, is it's just hassle-free, right? So the tenants are docile, the property professionals and the banks and the insurance companies, the people that you deal with on a regular basis, um, they're very reliable and honest. They don't have their hands in your pocket kind of thing. So it's a very headache-free, hassle-free environment to be operating in. So you can just focus on making the money rather than chasing rents and chasing professionals and so forth. I, I think, is that what you were asking? 
Yeah, no, this is this is really helpful, and I think you've answered. Uh, you really gave me a really good perspective. And I was wondering, in that, in that, uh, along the same lines, would you say that investors look at primarily residential and not commercial, uh, uh, or is it a mix? And both of them are uh, basically are both of them interesting from a returns perspective, or as interesting because. The benefit of commercial is you get these longer term and maybe more reliable tenants and all. And if you don't have to worry about that because the Japanese tenant is just very good, well behaved and pays on time and everything else like that, then maybe the the benefits of going into a larger commercial isn't as warranted as uh, it is in the U.S. or elsewhere. Well, again, there's a couple of factors that come into play here that are a bit counterintuitive to what you'd see in other countries. So the... Um the upside and downside, depending on when you bought and what sort of tenant you have, is um, f- for the same reason that the price is now low. Rents are now a lot lower than they were uh, in the 1990s, for example. But the Japanese don't tend to be, um, they tend to avoid confrontation at all costs. So you'll often have cases where you're purchasing a property that's already got a tenant in there. And that tenants moved in, say, 15 years ago because they like to stay in the same place for as long as they can. They're still paying the rent that they've paid 15 years ago because they just don't want to come up to the landlord and try to negotiate a lower price, even though they're fully aware that had they moved across the street to a similar property or, you know, two suburbs down to a similar property, they might have been paying half the rent, but they're never going to confront the landlord and ask for a rent reduction on the residential front. On the commercial front, on the other hand, it's more of the standard dynamics that you'd expect from other countries. So commercial rents can be raised when the economy does well. Um, So if you've got a a lease in place for, say, five years, at the end of those five years, if the economy does well, and obviously if your business does well and you're still there, um, then it's quite quite reasonable to expect that the uh, landlord will ask for a higher rent and then you, you know, you'd make your own calculation as a business renter whether you want to pay that or not. Um, but on the other hand, it's a lot more volatile. So our customers, for example, are interested in both, but as soon as COVID hit, the focus shifted. And I don't think it's only our customers. I've been reading that in reports from um, um, other bodies as well. The focus shifted far more towards residential properties because they're considered a lot more... Um, uh, safe and stable actually in Japan than commercial properties are and definitely so in times of crisis and a large part of that is because um, Japan is a very sheltered working environment so not, not as sheltered as it was up to a decade or two ago but still it's very rare to see massive layoffs it's very rare to uh, see people taking salary hits or being out of a job in Japan so you're not going to see um, um, people not being able to pay the rent in most cases. You're not going to see uh, uh, mass evictions, forced evictions, or otherwise. It's um, the residential side of things is actually the more stable um, sector here compared to commercial. But commercial can gain more yield overall, depending on where and how and what sort of properties you buy. Um, so it really depends on the investor and the risk appetite. Uh, we. Try to we try to advocate a, a diversity of both, but um, maybe depending on investor appetites, maybe sixty to eighty percent residential and the rest commercial, um, just to uh, be able to get a bit more diversity in hedging. Hey, Ziv, if if you don't mind, um, could you expand on that and talk about the key money? Because as a as an actual renter who's leaving Tokyo at the end of the month to move to Chiba. Um, it was the rent itself is 50% less, but to move into another apartment with the key money is exactly the same price I would be paying to move 
to, to another prefecture further out of Tokyo. And Sorry, I'm walking on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will, we will in a moment, uh, Raymond. But let, let me just move down the line, and we'll get to there in a second. Okay. Yep. Hey, thank you very much, guys. I'm, I feel my my questions have been very well answered, and you know, I'm I'm happy to pass it down to whoever's next. No worries. And then, guys, uh, just a quick, not not really a room reset, but just a minute. If there's any topic we're we're getting um, we're getting pretty long with the timing here. So if there's any topic that you want to talk about that we haven't been able. Um, to answer or get to yet, feel free to click on our profile pics. You can, of course, follow us so you'll get a notification of uh, whenever this room comes up again, but also you can click on the uh, links in our profile to message us directly via Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever we've got there. We'll be happy to answer any and all of your questions. And our profile also um, um, usually state what it is that we are specializing in. So, Jason, how are you, mate? I'm well. Listening in while uh, sort of working. Thanks very much, very interesting. Uh, I have a question about um, if you invest in the house here, whether it's a residential property at first or an investment property, and then you leave the country. Uh, how are people um, maintaining bank accounts, etc., when they're not no longer a resident to maintain their property? My, my wife's been looking into that, and you have, when you leave the country, um, you're supposed to let them know, of course, that you're not. No longer a resident, and you could use use family um, addresses, and then you'd have to pay tax, residence tax, and things like that. Uh, perhaps also other complications. But how how do people handle owning property here and not being in the country? Um, I can't talk about the people owning property and having bank accounts. Uh, what will my clients do? Actually, my, the clients that I they, I look after their houses um, and I put their money into their local uh, into their local bank accounts um, and then they use that to pay the mortgage um, but they often reside out you know their residency is outside of Japan right now um, I don't know what what they've declared um, for their own personal taxation system so that's kind of up to them but I know that people do that because uh, um, I do it for my clients so it, it so when I, whenever I pay them their rent or whenever I pay them their, um, their commissions on, um, on short-term rental income, uh, I put it into a local bank account and then they deal with it from there. Um, but just as an anecdote as well, my, my parents lived in Japan 20 years ago um, and they left and they come back to Japan once a year normally. They come back to Japan once a year. They've still got their bank accounts. Um, they've just got... Their, their, their home address labelled as my address and they come in and out of the country and then use their own money when they're here, um, which just makes it easier. But they've, they've never had any issues with taxes because they, they've, handed, they've already handed in their residency cards. They don't have a visa here anymore. Um, but the banks, uh, whether that's a no-no or not, I'm not sure, but there's never been a problem. Now, mainly people just forget to mention it to the bank. They notify the immigration department when they leave and they don't really uh, remember to notify the banks that they've left. So they just uh, hang on to their accounts. But Jason, in other cases, like all of our customers, not all of our customers, I'd say 70 or 80% of our customers reside overseas and don't have bank accounts. So in that case, um, if they're only investment, invested in a single location or a couple of single locations, then they work directly with the property manager who collects the uh, funds, uh, keeps it for them uh, to either withdraw when they come here or to remit overseas to their overseas accounts. 
Um, and those who are more diversified and have more portfolios in various locations usually use a portfolio manager like us who provides the same sort of service. We collect it from the property managers. We pay all of the expenses and we give them an annual statement and then remit to their um, chosen account overseas whenever they instruct us to. Can I also add to that um, in terms of the, the bank loan? Uh, JC, I think we've had similar discussions in the past. So in general, the, the home loans, when you get a, so I think your idea is, okay, you buy your own personal family home and then and you have a home loan, a mortgage, and then you were to leave the country. Okay, you're Australian, you move back to Australia. What do you do? Technically, the bank says, if it's no longer your primary residence, um, even if you are still living in the country, if it's not only your primary residence, you need to notify the bank and pay off the loan. Um, the other thing that, um, in terms of banks, is if you're not resident, you should not maintain an account, a bank account. Um, what happens realistically is if you, if it's your prime residence and for some reason you move out, uh, the bank, you know, and you can change your address with the bank, um, Generally, the banks don't inquire about the property, what's happening to it. Um, or if they do, say, look, I'm, I've moved overseas for, for whatever, for work, for just a few years. I plan on returning. It's still, my primary, it's still going to be my residence when I return. It just shouldn't remain vacant for that period. They won't change anything or they won't request any changes to the loan as long as you're paying the mortgage on time. Um, but then in terms of maintaining an account, if you have permanent residency, then... Uh, I guess I use you, you could possibly return to the country at some time, so there's no harm in, in maintaining an, an account. And your residency card also has no expiry date. It says your 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 length of residency is, is permanent, so you don't um, – there, there's no expiry to it. Recently, was the last time I went into my Prest, uh, Prestia Bank, they actually asked me for a copy of my residency card to confirm the, the statement time, to, to confirm the date the length, and I've, I've heard that for a few people as well. So if you have permanent residency, I think it's not so much an issue. If you are not a permanent resident, um, then I'm not certain what actually happens. Uh, but as you mentioned, so, you know, don't, like, just don't, you don't necessarily mention it to the bank. Um, and if the bank do find out later on, um, they may contact you and, and ask you to, to stop the account, etc. But, uh, yeah, I think the intention is that you may come back and live in the property at some time. Uh, well, even if there is no schedule for it, then... You're overseas on the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my wife was saying even she needs to tell the bank. So I, I am a PR, but... Um, yeah, that one doesn't have anything to do with the foreigner or non-foreigner. Basically, anyone who's no longer residing in Japan, whether Japanese or not, by bank policies are requested to notify the bank and close the account when they leave. Um, but it's a bank policy, right? It's not a law, so you can definitely forget. But again, for um, for managing properties in your absence, um, definitely people who are more foreigner oriented, like uh, uh, Tracy. Um, I don't know that Emil does property manager, but property managers in Tokyo, Niseko, a few in Osaka, definitely near the um, army bases in uh, Yokosuka, Okinawa, and so forth. There are property managers who are used to working with foreigners, so they will be able to collect and remit funds overseas, and you know, hold a retainer and pay your expenses out of that. And in other locations around the country, or if you've got more locations, then a yeah, portfolio manager is your best bet. 
when you uh, get a home loan, even if you leave the country, um, so when you have a home loan, just say it's with uh, Mizuho Bank, you'll have a, a Miz, that home loan gets paid through a Mizuho Bank account. Even if you've never used Mizuho Bank before, once you get the home loan, you have to create a Mizuho account, and that's where the home loan will get their money from. Withdraw the money from the monthly payment um, or your mortgage repayments. So it's it's not really possible for you to close the accounts and maintain the loan. Okay, that that makes no sense. Um, so yeah, uh, they're I, not going to be accepting mortgage payments from overseas, right? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. If you didn't know that, and you dutifully told the bank, "Hey, I'm leaving the country. I'm not going to be a resident for some years." They're going to freak out. <laughs> You've got a loan to test. I think, I think that, to be honest, I think the bank will rather turn around and say, uh, but you're going to come back to Japan, right? You're planning to come back and live in the property once you finish. Yeah, they're not looking for the hassle yeah. either, Jason. But that, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to say, look, if, if there are some people that are a bit more risk averse um, and you know, maybe anxious about, about, you know, administrative items like this. And you know, say, yeah, if you're, if you feel you or your spouse and one of those people, um, that do just work on, oh, these, these are the technical requirements. And if we leave, we can't, you know, we have to notify and we have to close. We have to sell the property if we no longer live there. Then perhaps owning is not, is not the, uh, the, the best option for you because you're never going to have the peace of mind that you want. All right. So, I sorry, Jason. Wonder if a lot of foreigners who invest in their home here um, actually make that. Well, you don't. You don't need a bank account to invest in Japan, though. I mean, to own a property and you know pay the bills and and get the income from rental, you don't need. I mean, it, it'll be easier if all of our customers could open a bank account, but the vast majority of them can't. So there are just solutions for that, right? Oh, Ziv, no. I think he meant like people that purchase a home and then leave the country. Yeah, but I mean, not not everyone's going to then sell their home immediately, right? Like people would still be doing something with it. Yeah, presumably then it turns into a rental property. Yeah, so I'm saying that even even if you do end up closing the account, that's that's surmountable at least. I'm not sure about the mortgage, but it's definitely surmountable as far as renting it out and and paying the uh, bills go. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, thank you guys. No worries. Alejandro, do you have, uh, we heard from you before, but did you have any questions as well? Yeah, sorry about interrupting before. Yeah. Um, what can you get for, like, let's say about 25 million yen? Can you do the breakdown on what you can get in rent and where to, where you get a property or things like that for investment purposes? Yep. So it, I would say it really depends on your yield requirements and any other criteria that you might have. So if a customer would come to us and say that they want to maximize and get the best potential percentage rental yield for that amount, we would probably advise to them to separate it into two smaller, cheaper properties, or maybe even three, depending on where they buy. So we'd advise them to not purchase in central Tokyo or central Osaka. They would go for um, secondary cities, which can be quite big, like Yokohama, for example, is Japan's second biggest city. Um, but not Tokyo and Osaka in as far as they're considered the um, 
um, the business and most internationally renowned centers of Japan. So we would direct them away from Tokyo and Osaka to places like Yokohama, Nagoya, Fukuoka, uh, maybe Sapporo or Kyoto. Uh, so secondary cities or satellite cities. So the bedroom communities and the prefectural capitals um, that are either around the bigger metropolitan centers like Kobe near Osaka um, or Chiba City or Saitama near Tokyo. Um, and then in those locations, you could potentially purchase two or three rental units, so condo units, which are usually the asset class of choice, at least for investment. And those would probably generate a return of somewhere between 5 to 8% uh, net pre-tax. So including all of your purchase and non-running costs, but not including whatever your annual tax circumstances and not including any unknowns like um, vacancies or maintenance and so forth. So we can provide rough estimates on that, but um, depending on the size of the portfolio, those tend to be skewed. So net pre-tax, I'd say 5 to 8% annually. If you want something that's a bit more safe and stable than maybe a single condo unit um, in uh, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, uh, maybe Nagoya, those are I would consider the most safe and stable locations, Kobe, Yokohama as well, but maybe a single unit. In that case you would get maybe five to six percent if you're lucky net before tax per annum. Um, and if we're very lucky, especially now with COVID, we have seen a few smaller buildings in some of those secondary cities. So you could potentially get a four or six unit block for that price. Uh, it's not going to be super new and super central, but it could be a pretty good cash cow and you'd have a larger land plot to go with it. Uh, and you'd have the creative freedom to do more things with the property itself than you would if you were to buy um, individual condo units because those are subject to um, uh, building management and owner union uh, bylaws. Whereas if you own the entire structure, you're more free, depending on municipal uh, limitations, but you're more free to lease it out short term. And in the future, you might want to tear it down, build something else there. So that's an option as well. Although usually that would start at about 30 million yen, so about 300,000 at best. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. And uh, Jamiel or Jamil? Yeah, it's Jamal. Um, I have a question, but I also wanted to say something um, for the Americans in the room. I'm not sure if Saad, Saad I hope that's how you pronounce his name, if Saad is still listening. But, um, yeah, okay. yeah, I'm here. Yeah. So for Americans, it's, it's really important to know that whether you're living in America and plan on going back to the U.S. or just keeping your... Uh, living, sorry, living in Japan and planning on going back to the U.S. or um, keeping your American citizenship at all, um, you still have to pay taxes in the U.S. Oh, yeah. If you do invest in a property in Japan, uh, it would probably qualify as a PFIC uh, for, uh, what is it? I'm sorry, uh, passive foreign investment company, which means that the taxes would be pretty high on an investment in Japan for property. Well, I mean, but Japan and the U.S. have a tax treaty, you, so you would... I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I'll, I'll certainly look into that more closely. I appreciate that. Thank you, Jamil. No Jamil, I think the... Um, the sorry, just, just to clarify that, I think because Japan and the U.S. have a tax treaty in place, then you would first be paying all of your tax dues in Japan, and then only the difference you'd be uh, paying the tax on in the States. Is that correct? Uh, 
Um, it's actually really complicated. So if you're living, like, I'm actually living in Japan right now, and I've been talking to financial advisors, which is why I know this. It's not like I personally researched this, but the financial advisor is American, and he was informing me that, um, and I'm also, you know, applying for my taxes in the U.S. But for the most part, if you don't, if on your salary from a company that you're working at, you wouldn't have to, you have to file taxes, but you don't have to pay for the taxes in Japan, uh, sorry, in the U.S. So as far as filing, you just have to pay for filing, and you wouldn't have to pay taxes for your salary. But any investment, like extra money, not including income, including stocks, you would actually be, because you're taxed in the U.S. for all investments, you would have, um, if it's a foreign investment, it would be considered PFIC, which is like the, the highest tax rate that you can get in the U.S. And if it was, for example, stocks, if you're investing in American stocks, then it would just be taxed like a normal um, stock investment. Yeah, well, what I mean is is that, okay, let's say, for example, your income tax in Japan, uh, you're paying, depending on your salary and, and investment income, your income tax in Japan would be, for example, you'd be paying, um, I don't know, 20 or 30%, and in the U.S., you'd need to pay, because of that uh, structure you've described, you'd need to pay 40%, but you're not going to be paying twice, right? So you'd be paying what you owe to okay, Japan. Okay, I, I think from my side, uh, yeah, we, I can hear you. I think from my side, I'll be able to do some research and just learn more how uh, the tax treatment of investing in foreign income, like in Japan. I think I think I was just my question is very exploratory, so I was still really just understanding the dynamics, and uh, I got enough information to get engage interest. But I think the next step would be to do a lot more detailed analysis. And what you said, Jamil, is very helpful, so I appreciate that. Thank you. No yep. problem. It's something that I just learned recently. So. All right, so go for it, Jamil. Your question. Yeah, um, so I think it was Emil who was talking, well, everyone was talking about it, but if you, from my understanding of what you said is, if you got a house loan for a residential that you plan on living in, there's no issue, but if you planned on moving out of that residence, whether it be abroad or at a different residence in Japan, you would have to notify the bank and then you'd have to pay the loan off in full, is that what you're saying? So I'll explain the scenarios. Um, in general, when you so home personal home loans, uh, home loans are very uh, favorable terms for you. They are almost 100% financing, or even 105% financing, which means the bank will pay for the entire property plus closing costs in some cases. Okay, so there's no very little outlay from you, and the interest rate is about 0.6%, 0.7%, um, or even even lower. We can get. So um, it's very favorable terms. Um, in contrast, an investment loan, you'll need 20 to 40% deposit, and the, t the interest rate will be closer to 2%, 2 to 3%, okay, or maybe even 3.5. So the fact that it's a home loan, a due type of loan, it's very, very cheap. Okay. Um, now, in, let's say you, to, you were to buy your own personal home and then move out. You know, be it a different property in Japan or go back to go back to the states. You've now got and 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 you want and you want to rent out your house that you had or your apartment, whichever. You now have a investment property, but the loan backing it is is designated as a home loan. Okay, not an investment loan. The bank generally, 
in the bank contract says that if you if you're not going to need to live in it, if it's not used for a residence, um, then it, it will be you need to either pay off the loan or the loan conditions will change, right? Maybe the interest rate will change, etc. Um, I don't have any experience of that happening. So, but in my my Google research, what I have seen is there are three scenarios. Okay, one is one scenario is they um, will keep the, uh, the, the even if you've moved out, they won't change the interest rate or nothing happens. Right, you keep the low interest rate and you just keep paying off the mortgage as normal. Um, the second scenario is they ask you to repay the loan in full. So generally, that means you need to sell the property. Or the third option is, uh, the third scenario is they will increase the change of loan to an investment type loan and the interest rate will be higher. Um, and I don't know if you'll need to pay in some equity or not. I'm not sure about that. And anecdotally online, what I've read is the situations where it happens that uh, if, if the person has moved out um, for either work has changed and they need to go to a different area, but they plan on maybe returning back to the property at one at one time and making it their home, then the banks don't do much. They just they will just turn a blind eye to it. Okay. Um, then the situations where you have and that's even if you rented it out, right? Um, or even if you've moved overseas and you want to come, but you think, oh, you know, I'm just work, I'm living here for a bit, but my my home is still in Japan and I plan to come back um, in in a few years time. So I'm just renting it out so I can pay off some of the mortgage in the meantime. And they, the banks haven't done anything. The situation where um, the person has actually lied to the bank. They said it's for a home, but from day one, they rented it out. Okay, so they've never even lived in it themselves. And the intent was never for them to live in it themselves. Then the bank uh, has gotten upset that they were deceived to begin with. And that's when they changed the loan conditions or asked for it to be repaid. And the third scenario where the bank has been unhappy is when generally if it's a, a wooden like if it's a wooden house and after you've moved out, let's say you've changed it to um, uh, what is it like instead of being a one one house, you've cut you've divided and you've made a one LDK downstairs and a you know and another two bed two LDK upstairs and you've now changed the structure of the property such that it's two separate residences. Then they don't like that you've changed that because you can't go back to it. It can't be back to your home. You modified it to just increase the rental return. So that's the that's the cases where they'll ask you to pay back or change the interest um, structure. This is just anecdotally what I've seen online, um, what I've read online. In practice, I don't know anyone who's had the uh, interest rate change on them or any. I don't know anyone who's had anything actually happen to them. Um, they just carry on paying the mortgage as is. Okay, I have to answer the question. Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. Uh, but I have a little bit of a follow-up question, if it's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so if you were, if I was thinking about investing in a property in Japan, then it would be better to, if I don't plan on changing my residential home to an investment property, it would be better to just get an investment loan straight from the beginning with a 20% down? Um. Yes, yeah. So if you, uh, you mean, you want to, you, you want to just a pure investment property? Like I was thinking in the future. Then I was also, you know, like in New York, it, it 
really simple to just buy a house and when you lived in it for a while and saved up enough money to invest in a property, you change that into a rental and you buy a new property. That's kind of like the common practice. Mm-hmm. Like in Japan, from what you were telling me, I mean, I could chance it, but it would be better to probably just save up the money and buy a separate, or uh, get a separate investment loan to buy an investment property. Okay, that's a that's a, a tricky question. No, hold on, I'll take my, my uh, headphones, batteries are dying. Wait, so. Come on, Emilio, you just dodged yeah, okay. the question. Cool, all right. So, that, that's a tricky one. Let, often, an investment property and your primary residence are two different beasts. Like, just the size of the, just the value, the dollar value of it is going to be significantly different, okay, um, in, in general. Uh, how much the bank will loan you? So, you know, if you can get, Generally, a bank for your personal home, a bank will loan you about seven times your gross annual income. So if you earn, say, 7 million yen, the bank will give you 90 million. Uh, sorry, the bank will give you 45, almost 50 million yen. So seven times 7 million yen annual is about 49, say, 50 million yen. Let's play with that number. So for your primary residence, you can borrow about 50 million yen without any money down. If you want to buy an investment property, the bank can give you sort of a... Uh, we'll give you a bit less to begin with because interest rates are higher. They'll want a down payment of 20%. So that's another 10 million yen deposit. So all, instead of getting 50 million yen, a 50 million yen property um, with very little money down at 0.7% interest, you're going to get maybe a 40 million yen property with 10 million yen down payment, right? So it's completely, it's, it's, it's quite different, um, the kind of property that you get. So if you're going to buy an investment property, chances are it's not going to be something that you could also alternatively use as a primary residence. Okay, you probably wouldn't want to live there. Unless you're a backpacker and you're just coming into Japan with a lot of cash and you want to splash it around. Yeah, but, but, we're, but we're talking about financing, right? So the fact that you can finance means you, uh, you're, you're working here, right? You're resident here and you've been, you're employed here and you're, you know, you, like, if, if you are eligible for finance, finance to begin with. So if you're deciding, should I get a home loan or an investment loan, then you probably live here and work here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about these loan opportunities. Um, so the, the, the kind of property you're allowed is different. And then the next, and what you can buy through financing, an investment property will be lot more money, more cash required and less funding available with higher interest rates. Okay, so all right off the bat, you're looking at two different scale of properties. Right, one's fifty million, one might be forty million with a hundred million yen down. That's right, with, with ten million yen deposit. The other thing to consider is this is an important one. If you buy an investment property first, let let's say you buy a twenty million yen investment property, so you have a twenty million yen loan, right, and you've paid whatever necessary cash, but your actual outstanding loan is twenty million. When you want to buy your primary residence, right, and again, you say your income, your bank, the bank says, we'll give you 50 million. Hold on, you already have a 20 million yen investment loan. So we're only going to give you 30 million. Generally, we'll give you 50, but you've already got a now standing 20 million yen loan. So your buying capacity is now 30. So now you can only buy property that's 30 million. So by buying the investment property first, using financing, you've sort of shot yourself in the foot 
by being able to like and reduce the amount you can leverage this great the the uh, the home loan which has great terms. Does that sound clear? It, it does, but does that work in the in the vice versa as well? With the like, you buy the home first, and then when you go for the investment property, the amount of money that they loan you for investment is also cut. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It it. It does work opposite the same way. So let's say you buy the 50 million yen property first, and then you want to buy an investment property. The bank will say, well, you've already maxed out your 50 million. You don't have much capacity to borrow extra. Um, so yes, it does work. But my my approach, right, then, look, it's, it's personal preference for everyone. My take is I'd rather get the 50 million yen loan with, which is hundred like no cash money out of pocket or very little cash down at zero point seven percent interest rate, and miss out on the twenty or thirty million yen loan at two and a half percent interest rate with only eighty percent financing. I'd rather miss out on that investment loan and get maximize this great home loan than the opposite. I don't want to miss out on a great home loan opportunity by having a an investment loan, which is not very attractive terms, relatively speaking. So, but that's all, all personal preference. Um, yeah. So, yes, you're right, um, and that's my take on it. Okay. Thank you for answering that question. I have more questions, but I'll just let other people go. Okay. Sure. Yeah. If, if anyone else, if Raymond or Hassan wants to ask, we can. Uh, we'll open up to them. Um, but then, yeah, I think yeah, you may like your, your questions are relevant and I think they're also interesting to other people in the audience so we'll definitely get back and, and see where, where you want to explore with that um, but Raymond hello what question uh, happy to answer any question you may have man find that mute button um, no I, I didn't have a, later on offline I mean, like, there's some things I want to talk to you about but um, cool. the uh, some of the questions that I one of the thing I wanted to talk about earlier with Ziv is it was really more around if people are looking at investment properties, why do people not move or tend not to want to change? Um, in the years on and off years that I've lived in Japan, I would say the cost, the initial cost up front, especially if the property is asking for key money, and, and I'll let some of the other people in the real estate who are more um, prof professionals or educated on the, the key money experience, talk about it. But, uh, for example, the property that I'm in right now, I've lived here for two years at, to the end of this month, and uh, it took 15 million yen just to get in. That's a big chunk of money, right? You know, um, 15,000 just to walk in the door, and it's going to cost me about 15 million to move, to live in an apartment with that first, last deposit, and a whole year's rent. It's estimated about 15 million in Chiba, which Ziv talked about Chiba before. But 15 million yen? Are you talking about 15,000, uh, 150,000 I'm okay. saying paying rent for a year, first, last, first, last, and uh, and deposit with the rent and the you know the maintenance fee, 
is uh, 15 million yen. So. That would be 1.5 million yen, surely. Uh, 1.5, sorry, not 15, 1.5 million. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. that, that makes yeah. more sense. Okay. I always mess that up, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Not 15. Yeah, yeah so. 1.5. So I'll, I'll kind of just clarify. Oh, so wait, so what's your specific question? My question, the whole thing I wanted to go back, and sorry for the tangent, everybody, was one of the, the reasons I, I was hoping somebody would elaborate for the other people on the call who are interested is the reasons people tend not to move is, and, and this is my only two cents, is because when you want to pick up and move, it costs a lot of money to pick up and move, right? Even if the rent across, across the street, street is half so, the price. Um, so I'll, I'll, yeah, so definitely. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit to, to the audience um, exactly how it works. So we, we've done, we do rentals as well. I, like that's not my main thing, but our office, we have about 700 rooms under rental management that the, our, our agency manages. So we, um, we, we do lots of rentals. Yeah, we have about 10, 10 comings and goings a week just from the ones that we, that, that, that we manage, <coughs> let alone clients that do rentals. Um, with, with other properties that we don't manage. Um, but I, I focus on purchases, but I have done a handful of rentals and I fucking hate them to death for exactly the, the, what you've discussed. Quite often, so there's the deposit you need to pay. That's one or two months. Okay? Yeah. One or two months deposit. You should get some of that back, less cleaning fee. Cleaning fee, about 1,000 yen per square meter is reasonable. So if you have a 60 square meter property, then... 60,000 yen, 70,000 yen is what you can kind of expect for cleaning fee when you move out. Okay, uh -huh. so whatever, and they'll, they'll say that, look, when you move out, you need to pay the 60,000 yen cleaning fee um, and then any other damage that you've been caused, etc. The agents and the owners don't really make money out of this. It's not the business. It's really just straightforward, but the tenants always hate it. Um, but yes, there's two months to deposit. Um, then there's key money, which is just the, Gift money you give to the to the owner that you'll never see again, um, and that's either one or two, zero, one or two months. Okay, is the key money, and then you'll need to pay so you, up to two months deposit, up to two months key money. So that's four months right there. Then you'll need to pay one month of agency fee. So that's our our commission as an agent that will introduce you. So that's one month of the fee as as our agency fee. So that's five months right there. And then we have um, what often also happens is the uh, now guarantor companies are almost always required, right? especially in, in Tokyo. It's almost it's just it's pretty standard. So you need to pay. It's like two weeks to one month of fee um, of for guarantor company. Okay, so that's six months right there. Plus, of course, you need to pay the next month's rent in advance. So although that's not a yeah, it's, you can. Although you're still going to live there, it's kind of one of the, the costs that's required. So, like right now, we're middle of we're middle of May. So, if you get a contract now, like you want to move in tomorrow, you need to pay two weeks of May and all of June. Okay, so that's maybe seven and a half months worth of rent you need to pay right up the front. So, if you have 150,000 yen a month property, that's a million yen you need um, to pay. And you're right, it's it's really expensive, especially the key money and the the agency fee and the guarant and the guarantor company fee. There's that's you know two to four months right there, depending on the key money situation. Two to four months, which 
if you just stay in your current place and just do the pay the renewal fee, that's one month of renewal. So you can pay a renewal fee for one month or you can pay an additional essentially four months of lost cost just by changing because you need new key money, new agency fee, and new um, uh, guarantor company fee. So yeah, I definitely, it, it's one of the big factors for, where people don't move as frequently is because of the, uh, the cost involved. You're right. And, and, and if I could add one more thing to that um, consideration is if the, if you don't work for a company that will pay for a moving company and if you don't have a vehicle or rent a vehicle and move yourself, then you have to pay for, you know, like zero, one, two, three, one of those other companies. And that's also an additional at least uh, 100,000 yen, probably, you know, depending on how big or how much stuff you have, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, 100 to 300,000 yen if it's a full house, yeah, um, or even 500,000 yen. I've had some clients uh, do, but yeah, you're, you're right. So there's, there's additional moving costs there as well. Um, and there's going to be a bit of overlap, maybe a few, like, say, a week of overlap where you're paying rent for your existing property and for the new property. Look, what, as I said before, I hate rentals. Why I really hate rentals? The cost is one aspect. Man, the, the, the especially with foreigners, non-Japanese or mixed couples, that amount that the guarantee company require of you, and I mean like in terms of the questions that they ask, how flawless you need to be with your employment. Um, and then you're at just the, the the behest of the the owner and the management, the agency. Um, people, uh, a lot of in Tokyo, a lot of places won't even consider foreigners. Um, when you're looking maybe two hundred thousand yen and above, those kind of buildings are quite open to foreigners because they need like it's significant money, and they know that you know a lot of the expats um, or foreign foreign nationals will have. Um, uh, like higher incomes, which is pretty common. So they're, they're more open to that. But anyone in like the under 100,000 yen range, they're like, well, there's heaps of Japanese that, that apply for this this property. Um, we don't need foreigners. So yeah, it's just, it's pulling teeth. And we can buy, like the same thing with a home loan, we can buy a house for less money down than moving. Hmm. Um, so yeah. And, and again, that's the only thing I wanted to highlight or kind of bring. Not, not. I wasn't bringing it to the conversation. Thank you for speaking about it. Yeah, I just wanted to bring it up as it's been a personal pain of mine uh, as of recently. But it's also something if you're an investor or myself thinking of, you know, doing buying a property. Um, going back to what Ziv was speaking uh, about earlier um, with culture and moving, I, I feel that's one of the reasons why when tenants move in. They don't generally move out as much, you know. Um, yes, I just twenty-two cents. And it, yeah, it's it's the same reason. Yeah, you don't want to move, or you know, it's costly to move. So once, because moving is so expensive, um, it's it's a bit slower to do. Um, but like with a lot of our clients, like our rental clients, what we do is um, just one month deposit and maybe one month key money, or maybe no key money. But what's common is one and one is pretty common now. If you want to get a tenant quickly, if you're happy to take to sit on the property and not get a tenant quickly, then two months deposit, two months free money is okay. Um, like it will just take a bit more time to find someone who loves your property that well. But if it's like a just a mid or like a bit of an older property, older age property, then maybe one month deposit, one month key money, 
Or if you want someone to come in quickly, then just waive the key money. Of course, the rent can be a little bit higher, but for the investor, they look at the whole, all the figures combined when they think of what they, what they want their investment return to be. So it's like, okay, it's going to be rented out for two to four years at a time, and there'll be maybe a two or three month of gap vacancy in between, and I'm going to get this much key money and this much renewal fee, and these are the management fees that are expected to, and agency fees that I expected along the way. Um, and so it's all part of the calculation. And if they are going to go ahead with accepting two, uh, only one month key money or zero key money, then the rent needs to be adjusted so they can still meet their their annual expect. Or like in Tokyo, mid four percent are pretty common. Okay, for a, a moderate property. Um, but yeah, if if it stays vacant for too long because they want more money, then even though they're getting more key money, the overall the yield is going to go down because it's vacant for longer. But that's some, definitely something that the uh, the tenants um, that, that the owners consider, and they also consider. Look, they've spent so much moving in. I want that higher quality tenant. Is is also common. It's also a matter of uh, location and practices, and like Emil was saying, property profile, like. Um, Key money and thank you fees and all of those are a lot more common in Tokyo, for example, and in Osaka than they are in other cities. And also if the property is less attractive or there's more demand of comparable properties in the area when it becomes vacant, then a lot of our, uh, landlords offer to pay some of the move-in fees or offer one-month free rent or any sort of uh, incentive for potential tenants as well. So it's, um, it's more fluid in other cities is what I'm saying. I'll give some people a bit of a, you know, some some interesting information. Not, maybe not so useful for you guys, but just interesting in terms of the rental market. What you see sometimes is one month free rent or two months of free rent, and you think, well, you know what? Have I just forget about the free rent? Just don't don't charge me the key money, right? It's exactly the same. Just don't charge me the key money. Give me one month of free rent. Or, uh, sorry, don't charge. Yeah, and I'll pay rent from day one. Um, but the reason they don't do that is because, or, or the is, um, or the reason they just don't discount the rent completely, okay, um, is because with their financing that they've got, the owners with the financing are, have a certain expected return that they need to get on this property, okay, and that's based on what is that rent, what is the average rent for the building, um, and what is, uh, and you need to maintain this kind of return. If they start reducing the rent, then the numbers aren't going to say we get this kind of gross return. But if they give two months of free rent, it doesn't impact the numbers, right? How long it's been vacant for doesn't really impact. In, in practice, it impacts before the bank's calculation, the financing agency. They say, what, what's your rental you're getting for this property? And that's like that's kind of the, the threshold. Right, this is your rental, your yield based on just that rental figure, and so it's easier for them to give free rent for one or two months than to discount the rent, or if they start discounting the rent or reducing the key money requirements, then the ten other tenants in the future they're going to say, hold on, this this entire building now, they they've been accepting one month key money instead of two, so that 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 demand is going to change as well. Right um, for the entire build that impacts other tenants in the building and future tenants as well. So they'd rather keep it higher at the beginning and offer free rent 
then we'd remove the uh, the uh, um, like discount the price or remove the key money. So that's my little uh, just extra bit of information. No, it was good. It's good. I, I appreciate it. And again, I apologize if my point earlier came off like a tangent. No, no, it's very oh, valid. No, <laughs> we actually. Um, we because we work with uh, foreign landlords. All of our customers are foreigners. We actually instruct whenever possible. We instruct the property managers that we work with um, not to collect that um, key money or thank you money because we we think it's um, abusive to be honest with you. But again, depending on the location and depending on what's the common practice in that city, we might not be able to find a property manager who agrees to let that one go. So it's a. Uh, it's a common practice that I agree needs to change, but it's uh, it's taking a while. Well, and, and I don't think we've even talked about, we just talked about the financial, highlighted high-level financial cost of moving. Um, consider the soft, uh, or, well, if you're a business, you would say soft dollar cost in the sense that as an individual, now you have to go to the, the new city office. You got to go to your old city office and say you're moving. You go to a new city office and say you're moving. You got to update your address with all your, you know, your financials. You got to go to the police station um, and update your address with your Zydeo card, and if you have a driver's license. So there's time involved with just updating, and and until you've been through it, you're like, man, that's a lot of <laughs> that's a lot of time involved, and that could be time away from work or time you have to make up somehow, right? Yeah, that that's very true. That's why I love the just the house purchase, the amount. Oh, I say freedom, peace of mind you have when you own your own place. It's like I, I know I don't have to deal with that ever again. I don't have to deal with a landlord ever again. I don't have to like worry about guarantor company or, or any of that nonsense. Right? I want to, you know, just change change the wallpaper or I just extended my balcony. I want to have a barbecue on the balcony. And if any of the neighbors want to complain, hey, guess who they complain to? Me, because I'm I'm the owner. Um, so yeah, just. The, yeah, the, the much upside. It's not just financial; just a peace of mind when you have your own place, and that, that's why I enjoy the, uh, the the real estate sales so much because helping people get that peace of mind is. Uh, I know I've got it, and I want to give it to other people as well. Uh, good stuff. Thank you. Just on the cleaning fee, Emil, and uh, speaking uh, the um, deposit as a as a service. And, uh, and businesses called chicken busters. And cleaning, you can clean yourself. You don't have to pay that fee legally. And they can't force you to. And the regulations on what wear and tear is in this country are quite strong. So you really have to have trashed the place for it not to be considered wear and tear. And so chickens uh, should come back, your, your deposit should come back quite significantly. And I um, learned about that from an ex. And we actually used it. The guy came and he pretends to be or appears to be uh, a relative or someone, and he just goes around and states the law whenever um, the inspecting agent tries to bring up that they're not going to get back a certain amount of your money. Yeah, so I've done that. Uh, yeah, so the the law. So I'll discuss that in about two points, right? So I don't do rentals that much, but. Now a lot of rental contracts will actually very specifically say, when you move out, it's going to be a 60,000 yen cleaning fee. And you agree to it in the contract. Um, I think previously in contracts that don't have a specific, 
explicit, it's maybe easier to dispute and say, well, the house is clean, I shouldn't have to pay for your cleaning service. Um, but now it, it's very, very clear in there. This is how much it is. And, and we're going to take this from your repayment of the deposit of the shikikin, of the deposit. So 60,000 yen is going to go when you, when you move out. Also, Jason, you're, um, you're addressing this from the um, point of view of a foreign tenant, and I completely agree that more people should be doing this. But um, bear in mind that the typical Japanese tenant is very conflict-averse, and most of them would not be pursuing these sort of things. They just um, pay up if they have to or not move if they can avoid moving. And um, unfortunately, that's why the um, um, tenancy laws in this country are more geared toward tenants these days, because a lot of uh, landlords have been pretty predatory about it. Um, and also, it's very clear now in the contract, this is, it states um, in items of important matters, it says, like, it's the, the, the Tokyo rule. It says, this is wear and tear. These are all the items that you can be charged that is not ordinary wear and tear, and these are the items that are considered not wear and tear. And this is what is acceptable wear and tear. Like, you know, a, a good one is, you know, a black stain mark behind the fridge, Okay, if you have a fridge there and it sort of stains the the, uh, the back of the wallpaper, then that's ordinary wear and tear. Pinholes in the wallpaper, like you put a poster up with pins, pinholes are ordinary wear and tear. A screw hole is not ordinary wear and tear, right? Um, and also depreciation. You have to, uh, it's most items have a six year depreciation. So if you lived in a property that had brand new wallpaper when you moved in and it's been six years has passed, even if you've damaged the wallpaper, your kids have drawn on it, that you're not liable to replace it new for new for old, right? Um, because it's already it's had its full six year depreciation life. If you've lived there for three years and they say, hey, it's going to cost a hundred thousand yen to replace this wallpaper that your kid drew all over, okay, it's three years old, so you only have to, it's fifty percent depreciated, so you're only liable for fifty percent of that, and that's very very clear in the contract. Um, the item important matters has this whole thing uh, described, so that's where that's that's being made more clear now in in the contract as well. Yeah, and to be clear, my experience is uh, more than ten years old, eleven years old. Mm. Yeah, uh, and look, I, I like the contracts because they are clear, and similarly with the cleaning fee, right? From day one, like it it's, it sets the expectation. So, okay, look, when you move out, it says cleaning fee. I tell our tenants, don't vacuum, don't tidy the place. Like don't don't leave it trashed. That's different. Like take your trash out, but don't vacuum. That's what the clean six thousand and cleaning fee is for. And on that lovely note, I think we've been at it for an hour and a half. So unless anybody else has got any questions and they want to raise their hand and ask them, uh, we're probably gonna wrap it up. Again, super deep dive into a very wide variety of topics. Hope this brought you um, some value at least. The Clubhouse Room, again, is every Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Japan Standard Time. We're still trying to stream it on Facebook Live as well. We've had some successes and some spectacular failures in that particular department, uh, mainly, as you've probably guessed, due to my severely lacking technical skills, but we will work it out eventually. If you want a Clubhouse invite, the platform is still invitation-based, I think. Feel free to hit us up, and we'll send you one. 
Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you are already in Japan on some sort of a more temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, and also if you're considering setting up a local company or branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiry, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners and our clients. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com, all one word, and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, wherever you're tuning in from. Or just drop us a line in the comments section or wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoshiku. Yoshiku.